So please let yourself come back in and find a way to sit and be settled and at ease. So let yourself be settled and sit comfortably. And listening, in a way, is its own form of meditation, which is to say you don't have to remember anything, no quiz at the end or anything. let the words um, come, and they're a kind of reflection. And if they ring true, if they touch something that seems of value or, or true in your experience, then let that be a reminder to you of what you already know. And if they don't, forget about it. Let them, you know, let them go, throw them away. Um, so it's really more a way of being in touch with what you know as you listen to something from the outside. So again, sit sit at ease. And I'll start with a little chant that goes, Anicca vata sankara upatavaya damino upakitava niruchanti desang vupasamo sukho which means all things are impermanent. They rise and they pass away. To live in harmony with this truth brings true happiness. Some translation like that. (laughs) And I chant it in honor of the solstice, the longest day of the year, the great luminosity of our friendly star, our medium-sized star that we get to live near and feeds us all this beautiful warm sunlight. And the turning of the seasons um, is an amazing thing. Um, If you've ever seen a full eclipse, a total eclipse of the sun, uh, which is an amazing thing because then you get to see the corona around the sun and so forth. But if, if you get to go somewhere where you can see the total eclipse of the sun and you're up on a hillside and you can look out and it's clear, you actually get to see the shadow of the moon racing across the land toward you from a distance. And then all of a sudden you're in night, what seems like night, you're in darkness. And what you see actually is the speed of the movement of the spheres, of these bodies, these round bodies, one of which we live on and another is our sister, you know, circling us as the moon. And you get to feel the moon and the earth as they move around the solar system as they dance around the sun, the music of the spheres. And of course, one of the wild things is that um, today is the longest day of the year, um, which means, even though it's the beginning of summer, that we're headed toward darkness, that it's going to get shorter. This is it, (laughs) you know? As T.S. Eliot writes, what we call the beginning is often the end, And to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. So you take a breath and just feel the turning of the spheres and the seasons. And spring of 2010 now is gone. Came out of nowhere and did its dance. And now you get 
summer of 2010. And when we meditate, take this one seat halfway between heaven and earth, we sit in the mystery or the paradox of this great turning of life, of the seasons, and in the paradox that the light also contains the darkness, that the most luminous day then heralds the beginning of the darkness, and in the darkness there's, there's light, that they can't be separated, actually, that they dance together. And, of course, it's true of the stars and the spheres, but it's equally true of human incarnation, this mystery of being in a human body. A Serbian proverb, you don't hear Serbian teachings that often. (laughs) It says, be humble for you are made of mud and be noble for you are made of stars. And it's this paradox that we are made of sunlight, we're cooled starlight that congealed and made the earth and eventually, you know, as Brian Swims likes to say, Four and a half billion years ago, the earth was a flaming ball of rock that cooled down from stars, and now it can sing opera, right? (laughs) It's just this amazing thing that happened. Um, And we have to remember these two dimensions of the mud and the stars, if you will. We have to remember our Buddha nature, the luminous nature that came into this body. You remember both your Buddha nature and your social security number, right? Both basically (laughs) the, the two dimensions of the kind of visionary, universal, and the particular personal. For even though you're made of starlight, you can't ignore the personal individual dance that you've been given. Your unique race and history and tribe and lessons and learning, you know, and place on the earth. And if we misunderstand these or we don't pay attention in a wise way and get caught in identity, then there ends up racism and tribalism and conflict and a kind of rapacious consumerism because we don't see that we're connected with something greater. Because while there is this mysterious person that you are, this individuality, there's also something greater that's true in you. For like the changing of the seasons, the self also is a process. Mary Oliver writes this very simple verse. See if I can find you here, Mary. Two lines. For years and years I struggled just to love my life. It's about half the teachings you'll need in any spiritual discipline. (laughs) For years and years I struggled just to love my life. And then the butterfly rose, weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, she said, and vanished into the world. And that's the paradox of both caring, T.S. Eliot says, teach us to care and not to care. Because the self is not something fixed. It is a process. It's transparent. It's fluid. And Zen Master Suzuki Roshi says, if you want all of Buddhist teachings in three words, easy to remember, not always so. (laughs) That's how it is. So as we pay attention, we can shift from what's called the small sense of self, that kind of clinging, the body of fear, and rest more in a connection, rest the small self in a connection with something that is timeless, our our original nature. Thomas Merton, the wonderful Christian mystic, puts it this way. He left his monastery in Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky, and he came into Louisville, and he said, here I was standing at the corner of 4th and Walnut Street in the center of the shopping district, and I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine, and I was theirs, and that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation and monastic holiness. The sense of uh, liberation from illusory difference was such a relief and joy, I laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of becoming a member of the race in which the divine spark has become incarnate. 
There's no way of telling people that they're all walking around shining like the sun. And so there's the outer luminosity, but also there's the light that is carried in each one of us. And to sit is to step out of the tyranny of time and blackberries and to-do lists and all the things that we get lost in in this world and come back from what Aldous Huxley called the come back from the notion of always being seeking something else. He called this the 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 idolatrous religion of the future. You know, that you're always looking for something more. To come to rest in the reality of the present. The still point of the turning world. To be here. And to be here is really mysterious because you're not so much in control when you're here. Future thinking is trying to control it. It doesn't work very well. You can do some of it. It's useful, but as you've noticed, it's also kind of limited, isn't it? You try and you can control it a little bit and then it does what it wants. But as Somerset Maugham wrote, there are three rules for writing the great American novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. Right? <laughs> you know? This is what it means to rest in the reality of the present. It means to sit in the still point and to rest in what my teacher called the one who knows, to be the mirror or the witness, become transparent. So he said that there are all these different states of mind that come, joy and sorrow and liking and disliking and praise and blame and all the things that come, you know, and... uh, and all the different experiences. And you can focus on the experiences like, you know, trying to get them, rearrange them and get them all to be the right experience. But they're, they're ephemeral, they keep changing. Or you can rest and sit back and be more in the witnessing of these experiences. Not a kind of indifference or unhealthy attachment, but actually a loving presence that says, oh yeah, this one too, this too is part of the game part of the dance and see all the changes that come and go like the Buddha and say yes this too the question is not the future of humanity but the presence of eternity and to sit is to quiet the mind and open the heart and get a sense of the changing seasons of life and find your peace in the midst of it your composure Or even when you don't find your composure, to say, wow, not much composure here, is there? (laughs) You know, and go, yeah, this too. And as you do, as you meditate, as we did to start the evening, you sit, sense the breath, notice the waves of experience, rest in the witnessing, in the place of the Buddha that says, yes, the one who knows, this too. Um, You start to respect or remember to tend to um, the seasons of the body and heart and mind, what are called the foundations of mindfulness. You sit here and the body teaches you places of tension that can release the, the things that want your care and so forth. The, you know, you can't possess your body, you can't make it do what you want, but you can tend it and care for it, and love it. And that's a kind of deep wisdom that comes. So, when the Red Cross went into a community in southern Patagonia of the Pai, Native Americans, Native South Americans there, with medicine, their elders, especially the elder medicine woman, tried to explain. She said for us, the Pai, Health is a state of respect, which we call tekorasai. And in order to have it, different facts must be given, which all belong to this, to this state. The plants, the trees, which are used as simple medicines, but also all of them together, the trees taken as a medicine. The water, true and balanced words, Good food, not talking over other people's heads. The forest, 
the animals in the bush, the fishes, harmony, the village community, talking with one another and having conversations, keeping our ancient way of life, respecting our culture and individual being as well, the feeling of vigor which is given to us by all the above-mentioned things, the holding together of our community, the quiet and secure living on our land, the family, the village, our festivals. But then the outside people come and make us dependent on money and other material things, and this destroys our state of healthiness. You talk badly of others and take our land, and no land means nothing to eat, and nothing to eat means illness, and in the end you pull out of your pockets a little white pill and want to make us believe that if we eat that pill that this means healthiness, that this pill is health. Is that really what you think health is? So in some way when, when we sit and pay attention with a care and mindfulness, it's a return to the health of the body, to the, to the intelligence and the instinct and the, and the wisdom that comes through our attention. It's pains and the longings and the, 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 the healing that it wants and the liveliness of the body and the beauty of it. And we sit as well, and there comes a sense not just of this, tending the seasons of your body, and it does have seasons, doesn't it? But we also find a way to tend wisely to the seasons of our emotions. This from Christina Feldman, a teacher who comes here regularly. As you open to the rhythms of your heart with mindfulness, you meet a lifetime's accumulation of sorrow and grief and hurt. You encounter your capacity for rage, resentment, harshness, and fear. You also meet your capacity for tenderness, intimacy, and joy. This language of your emotions is universal. You can reach out to someone who's grieving because you know what grief is. You can comfort someone who is hurt, fearful or sad, because you know the contours of those feelings in your own heart. You can hold another person's sorrow in the tenderness of compassion because you know what it means to be held in the compassion of another. And so you sit and you learn the vocabulary of the heart and that it too has its seasons. Nice to hear the crows adding their teachings tonight. And I, 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 I stay here sometimes in the evening. I sleep here at Spirit Rock and there's, there's a, a couple of owls that live in the tree just a little ways from here. And as it gets a little darker, they start to hoot and sing and, and kind of start the night off so beautifully. So you sit and you feel the seasons of the heart and the emotions of love and grief and longing and and joy and satisfaction and connection and loss and gain and, and, and tend the heart in some wise way. Body and emotions. And then there's the foundation of mindfulness of the mind, meaning particularly the Storytelling mind. It has all these parts. But you know the inner dialogue, that thing that was going on while you were meditating with your breath, <laughs> that Chogyam Trumpa called subconscious gossip, right? <laughs> and the kind of endless reruns of the inner dialogue and visions and possibilities. As the poet Muriel Ruckheiser wrote, the universe is made of stories, not atoms, right? But of course... They're not all wise stories. You may notice that, you know, the the thinking process, just like the salivary glands secrete saliva, somehow the nervous system secretes thoughts, words and images, and they're just nonstop. It's a river of thoughts, basically, you know, most of which are repeats, reruns. They are from a bad channel sometimes, too. But anyway... (laughs) So there's that cartoon I talked about recently from Jules Pfeiffer where he writes in the first uh, little square, there's a man saying there, he said, I inherited my father's 
way of looking at things and his attitude. I inherited in the second panel, I inherited my father's style and way of moving, you know, and the third panel, and I inherited my father's, um, you know, way of relating to people and understanding the world. And then the fourth panel, and I inherited my mother's contempt for my father, right? (laughs) And you start to see that the stories you have, which were mostly kind of told to you in some fashion or other, and you, they get kind of programmed in a little bit, and then they just re- recycle themselves and repeat. And to be able to rest in the witnessing and say, oh, th- this is an interesting story, thank you for your opinion, you know, and not to take it so seriously. It's a shift from the head to the heart. The mind creates the abyss, and the heart crosses it. It's a way of knowing and listening and understanding the seasons of all these stories, the, the ones that are self-judgmental and critical and unworthy and self-aggrandizing or self-deprecating, you know, and then the thoughts that are useful ones, and even the ones that aren't useful, to say, oh, thank you, it's okay to hold it all with a compassionate heart. So you see the seasons of the body, the changing seasons of emotions, the turning seasons of thoughts, and the foundation of mindfulness of the Dharma, which means the principles, the laws that governing govern things. And, you know, as you sit quietly, you see first the impermanence of things, that everything is a river, river of thoughts, river of feelings, river of sensations, of perceptions that you, you know, you can't really hold on to as a, uh, as Suzuki Roshi said, not always so. Try it inside. See if there's anything that stays the same. And then, of course, there's the, the outer. Uh, does that stay the same either? I'm looking for this little passage um, from Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger where um, I can't find it, but he says, you know, he says, money really doesn't make you happy. He said... Um, I have $50 million when I had... Um, I'm no happier than when I had $48 million, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something that you learn from that. Thank you, Arnold. Thank you very much. Is that happiness doesn't come from grasping things. Whether you have a little bit or a lot, the more grasping you have, because things are always changing, the more grasping, the more you suffer. And the more you can hold it lightly, the changing seasons of the world, whether it's the growth of your children or the change in your personal relationships, you know, or the financial situations which you've noticed are subject to change, you know. The more that you can allow for change and and respect it and, and respond to it rather than hold on. Otherwise, you hold on, you get what's called rope burn, basically, because <laughs> it's going to change anyway, and you suffer. So you see that the kind of principles, and out of it comes wise speech, wise action, wise relationships. And in relationships, it's, it's true also, as you pay attention, there's a kind of invisible, it's, you know, if you, if you rest in awareness, you don't only see what's visible, but you start to feel what's invisible between people. Let me see if I can explain this. You know, in most conversations, it's not actually about the words. They have a certain piece of the communication, but it's really the intention behind it and the the spirit that's there. There are nine different words in Mayan, ancient Mayan, contemporary Mayan, Mayan tribes, for the color blue in the comprehensive Perua Spanish Mayan dictionary, but just three Spanish translations leaving six butterflies that can be seen only by the Maya (laughs) and proving beyond a doubt that when a language dies, six butterflies disappear from the consciousness of the earth. And so there's something really poignant about that poem that was written, but it's also a reminder of the delicacy of language and perception that what really goes on between us in our family or our work or our community or between 
tribes or people or nations is partly visible, but partly needs a kind of listening with the heart um, and an understanding of what is the intention that we bring if we listen to the seasons. And that intention itself or that capacity to listen more deeply, Thich Nhat Hanh calls it deep listening, listening to the turning of the spheres and the dance between human beings. Clarissa Estes writes, In myths and fairy tales, the deities and other great spirits test the hearts of human by showing up in various forms that disguise their divinity. They show up in robes and rags and silver sashes or with muddy feet. They show up in scales made of rose petals as a lime-yellow old woman, as a man who cannot speak or an animal who can. The great powers are testing to see if humans have yet learned to recognize the sacredness of spirit in all its varying forms. And so the mindfulness of the Dharma begins to show us the, the dance of life in its myriad facets. Now, yesterday, I think it was, Ajahn Amaro, a wonderful English monk who teaches here um, and is the abbot at Bayagiri in Mendocino, led a day and he was being honored because he's about to move to England and we'll miss him very much. Um, and he did that chant of all things are impermanent and people talked to him about how much they'd learned from him and there were a lot of tears because of his leaving and a lot of gratitude. Um, and gratitude, he has a light heart and a wonderful sense of humor in his teachings. But he's also a truth teller, even with that lightness. He really speaks truth and so people talked about how helpful he was when they were sitting with him and said, I just got a cancer diagnosis or the loss of a child or some great tragedy or some fear in their lives. And he would teach about change and teach about death and say death is, just, is not just at the end of, the, end of life, but it happens all the time that we let go. And prepare yourself. And they say, imagine that this is the, this is the day that you're really going to die. Have people meditate and then say, and when I ring the bell, this will be the last sound you hear. You know, and ring the bell. And people would prepare themselves. Okay, what is it going to be like to let go? Are you ready? And one thing that people find is that it's more peaceful than they expect. And that it's maybe not as fearful to let go into the next moment of mystery. Because to sense the turning seasons, as we do this evening, um, is to, again, let ourselves rest in the mystery of being alive. So this is from a book called The Heart's Code by a doctor who writes about a whole series of accounts of heart transplants and some of the strange things that happen to heart transplant patients. And it begins with this scene of this woman, Glenda, and her husband, David, driving along in the night time and seeing these bright lights in the rain headed right toward their car in this incredible terror and this huge crash. Um... And moments before the crash, this couple had argued over something silly and been sitting in resentful silence um, with no opportunity to apologize. And then this. Three years after the accident, Glenda sat with me in a dimly lit hospital chapel. At her request, I had arranged a meeting between her and the young man whose life had been saved by the gift of her husband's heart after he died heart transplant. The heart recipient and his mother were late and I was ready to suggest we leave because perhaps the meeting had scared them. And as I stood and took Glenda's hand, she said, no, no, we have to wait. He's here in the hospital. I felt him arrive. I felt my husband's presence. Please wait with me. Now, Glenda is a practicing family physician who is well-versed in bioscience and, as I do, admires the rigor and healthy skepticism of the scientific method. 
However, now, the power of something that transcends what science calls common sense was tugging at her heart. David's heart is here, she adds. I can't believe I'm saying this to you, but I feel it. His recipient is in the hospital. And moments later, the door opens, and the young man and his mother walk down the center aisle of the chapel. Sorry we're late, says the young man, speaking with a Spanish accent. We got here half hour ago, but we couldn't find the chapel. After introductions and awkward attempts at humor about a heart-to-heart meeting between this young wife and her husband's heart, the usually shy Glenda blurts out, This embarrasses me as much as it must embarrass you, but can I put my hand on your chest and feel his, I mean, your heart? The young man looked at me and then his mother and put his hand to his chest and nodded. And as Glenda reached forward, he unbuttoned his shirt and took her hand and gently placed it against his chest. And what happened then was mysterious, for Glenda's hand began to tremble and rolled down her che- uh, tears rolled down her cheeks. She closed her eyes and whispered, I love you, David. Everything is copacetic. She removed her hand and hugged the young man to her chest, and all of us wiped tears from our eyes. And they sat quietly in silence. And speaking to me then, the young man's mother spoke up. My son, she said, speaking with her limited English from Spanish. He uses that word copacetic all the time now. He never used it before he got his new heart. But after his surgery, it was the first thing he said to me when he could talk. I didn't know what it meant. He said everything was copacetic. It's not a word I know in Spanish. Glenda overheard us and her eyes got wide and she turned and said, that word was our signal that everything is okay. Every time we argued and made up, we would both say everything is copacetic. And this magic word then opened the doorway and the young man started to share the stories of changes he experienced from his heart transplant. Formerly, his mother said he was a vegetarian and very health conscious, and now he craves meat and fatty foods. <laughs> he was used, used to be a lover of heavy metal music, and now he loved 60s rock and roll. <laughs> and he had all these dreams of bright lights coming at him. And Glenda responded almost nonchalantly that her husband loved meat and had played in a 60s rock and roll band in medical school, and that she too had dreams of the lights of that fateful night. So to meditate in some way is to quiet ourselves and find a center and release the tensions that we carry. But it's so much more than that. It allows us to open to the mystery of our life, to shift from the stories that are the small sense of self, the shift of identity from what's called the body of fear, to know that we're shining like the sun, that we carry this star, Starlight in us. And I remember my teacher, Gosananda, who came here. My daughter used to call him Butterball. He was the Gandhi of Cambodia, and he wore this bright orange robe. And there's a painting she did of him in the bookstore when he and the Dalai Lama, who were old friends, met here. And, you know, he'd led all these amazing peace marches around Cambodia. When they met, they each tried to bow lower than the other one, and finally their heads bumped you know, when they were near the ground. and um, Gosananda, although 19 of his family members were killed in the Cambodian genocide, um, I work with him in the Cambodian refugee camps, and when it was time for them to go back, he said, we can't take the buses that the UN is offering. We have to walk and do loving kindness with our steps and our breath, every step, 100 miles through the through the war zones, still active fighting, to do loving-kindness every step so that we feel that we can go back and reclaim not just our land but our hearts. And he led for 15 years these peace walks across Cambodia. was nominated for the Nobel Prize three or four different times. And although he had all these temples, you know, and spoke 15 languages, that wasn't his calling It was, as this obituary says, to appear bird-like out of the Cambodian forest, 
chanting with a whole group of people behind him, and to surprise a man digging or a woman washing, and to remind them that the power of love was stronger than the forces of history, to sing, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And then to move on. So we sit to step out of the small stories and remember that which is more eternal. And to see from a deepening loving kindness, a deepening compassion, the world as it is. Um, And sometimes it's the compassion for the people and the sufferings of the world. Sometimes it's just the open heart to this is the way human incarnation is. Like it or not, it is the way it is. You know, you can fight against it, but it was gorgeous traffic. It was beautiful traffic. That's what was not usual. It was a beauty to see, to hear, to smell, even to be a part of. It was so dazzlingly alive, it all but took my breath away. It rattled and honked and chattered with life. The people, the colors of their clothes, the marvelous hodgepodge of their faces, all of it, the taxis, the shops, the blinding sidewalks. The summer day made everybody a celebrity, blacks and whites and browns and yellows, every last one of them. It made litter and clamor and turmoil of it a kind of miracle. And so to, to sit also is to come back to a kind of innocence and say, wow, look at this, what we're born into. That's really what love is, you know, to, to see it as it is. And to see then with wisdom as well, with a, a kind of clarity. This is the way that it is. How do we respond the wonderful Polish poet and activist, Cesla Milos, was said, he had a rare gift of knowing how to be at once troubled and unperturbed. <laughs> when light was needed, he was light. When stone was needed, he was stone. You know, somehow to find our rhythm in the midst of all of this. So yesterday morning I got a call from my daughter, Caroline, who is um, uh, at Berkeley uh, Law School. She finished her first year, 1L year, and she's doing a summer internship for the Berkeley um, War Crimes Project in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, because she's doing human rights law. So she called, Happy Father's Day. And, and I said, how's the work going? You know, we're going to talk about it. And she said, well, for a while it felt very dry because there's this court and all the depositions and a few people will be tried and there's this kind of world court system of justice and a few of the leaders of this may be imprisoned, but it's a very, very slow process. She said, but my work is partly educational to help other people understand what had happened so that it's not just about the, the court, but it's about some seeking more than justice of a, of a reconciliation. And one of the NGOs that she works with, she said two days before, had taken a group of the 2,000 victims who had submitted written descriptions of what happened to them to the court. You know, you submit a written description. Had taken these people as a group out to one of the killing fields. I think it was called um, Chong Ek, um, which was a place where the Khmer Rouge in committing this genocide had taken all the teachers and intellectuals and monks and anybody educated um, and killed them in horrific ways. Um, And this group was taken out along. There's a a kind of... um, Buddhist uh, memorial there as well, along with a whole group of other villagers and monks and nuns. And they went and they made a ritual where they, those who were victims could stand up and read from their deposition out loud the story of what happened to them, of their children who were killed or their aunts and uncles or their parents or their teachers, um, of how many this happened to Um, and be witnessed. And not only were they witnessed, 
but um, then they were sung to and they were chanted to. And a couple of my daughter's friends who were working with them said, how come you know those Buddhist chants? She chanted along. She said, that's a long story. I didn't tell you that. You know. Um, and then she said, so what we're trying to do is wed justice with mercy here. It was a beautiful Father's Day present to have that call from my daughter. Um, and to understand somehow, I mean, I see it in the work with vets coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, that they need a place to tell their story, however terrible it is. This is what I saw, and this is what I did. And to have somebody meet them with a kind of homecoming that says, you really suffered terribly, and yet we can hold a space of compassion and justice and mercy for you that allows you to really return. And my daughter said the amazing thing was after the monks chanted and the songs happened, she said there was a lightness in this that I wouldn't have expected. I thought it would be so heavy. But there was, there was a, a lightness, a, a kind of relief of reconciliation that was people just needed to be heard. And... Um, uh, Jacques Verdun, um, who I worked with the Insight Prison Project in San Quentin and elsewhere, works with the movement here called Restorative Justice. And in the Restorative Justice movement, um, people who've committed some terrible crimes, murder, all kinds of terrible things, uh, who begin to change their lives in prison through meditation, dharma practice, or whatever it is, um, can volunteer and say, I want to make amends to the people I hurt or the families of the people I hurt. And there's a very delicate process of teaching them how to make contact and seeing if the family wants to meet them. And after a long and very careful process, sometimes a meeting will take place between a person who may have murdered someone in this family um, to tell the story of how, you know, 25 years ago I was 18 years old and messed up on drugs and this is what I did and, and in some way to ask forgiveness, to hear their story, to be told and to ask for something from that family. And as Jacques said, um, it's the strangest thing, but in the thick walls of San Quentin with the you know, the steel bars and all the people in their orange, you know, prison outfits and all the harshness. He said, when people come together like this, it's one of the holiest things I've ever seen in my life. Although the world is full of suffering, says Helen Keller, it is also full of the overcoming of it. And in the turning of the seasons, the world wants to renew itself. And the heart wants to get it right. You know, even on their deathbed, you all know the stories, the the mobsters and the dictators, they want to, well, is it okay? Can I be forgiven? You know, there's something in us that wants to redeem, that wants to get it right. In Buddhist psychology, psychology, it's called hiri and otapa which are translated as conscience. And it's that mystery where we shift from the loyalty to our suffering. You know how loyal we can be to our suffering (laughs) and all the clinging and fear to forgiveness or redemption or renewal. And um, in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, commissions, which were so amazing. This is Desmond Tutu saying, um, we want to forgive. I remember hearing the testimony of the daughter of one of the men from Craddock who were um, abducted and tortured and killed. Um, and the 16-year-old girl stood up and she said, I want to forgive, but I don't know whom to forgive. If only I could know who did what to my father and see their face then I would be able to forgive. And he said it was, you know, you would expect something else from the daughter of somebody, maybe a bitterness and a resentment from this young person. 
But this is really the calling somehow, no matter what happens, for renewal. And when we sit and open the mind, quiet the mind, open the heart, we become what is called in Sanskrit or Pali, Sikibhuto. We become the mirror, the awareness, the, the one who knows, the wise heart that says, oh, this too, this is the measure of sorrows of life and this is the measure of joy. And we become somehow the witnessing to this dance of incarnation with its 10,000 joys and sorrows. And we're able to see it with a kind of forgiveness the forgiveness from our own Buddha wisdom or Buddha nature. Many of you have heard this story. In the Babemba tribe of South Africa, when a person acts irresponsibly or unjustly, they're placed in the center of the village alone and unfettered, and all work ceases, and every man, woman, and child in the village gathers in a large circle around the accused individual. And then each person in the tribe speaks to the accused one at a time about all the good things that person in the center of the circle has done in their lifetime. Every incident and experience that can be recalled with any detail is recounted. All their positive attributes and good deeds and strengths and kindnesses are recited carefully and at length. This tribal ceremony often lasts several days and at the end, The tribal circle is broken, a joyous celebration takes place, and the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back into the tribe. I read this the other night, but what a a culture, what a way to deal with the sufferings of humanity, to see with the eyes of forgiveness. In these changing seasons of our life, An old Hasidic rabbi was asked by his students, how can we tell when the dawn has come? Because there are special prayers that you're supposed to make just when it becomes light at the dawning of each day. Is it when you can see in the distance a shape and tell whether it's a dog or a sheep? You know, or whether you can look in the distance and distinguish, is this an olive tree or a plum tree? Or when you can see, finally, the lines in your hand. And the rabbi kept saying, no, no, no. And they finally said, well, what is it? And he said, it happens when you see a person walk toward you and know that they're your brother or sister. And until then, it's still dark. This is what it means to see the light come. So we practice and we do our meditation and we take time to sit. Feel our breath, sense our body, notice the river of feelings and thoughts, but also find that place of stillness, of rest, of composure in the midst of it all. Walking meditation, walk in nature. Listen, take the time to do this. Take the time to be still and listen. Nothing else will feed you quite like it. Not all the doings, not all the best things you can do will feed this other deep knowing in you. And then as you sit, pay attention. Don't fear change and suffering. It's part of the dance. Anybody not have it? Raise your hand. You know, get with it, right? This is the Buddha... He writes, it seems that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. All things change. We are part of a river of change. Don't fear it. It is what we are. Take the time to sit, to be quiet. Don't be afraid of change and suffering. It's the nature of life. Rest in the one who knows, in the spacious awareness that can feel the breath and the emotions and the river of thoughts and all the relationships that come and go and sense that you're part of this greater dance. Relax in it. 
You all know that Ojibwe saying, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. So feel the winds and the change of seasons. And instead of going about pitying myself, as it says, rest in these great winds. And if you need to, heal your body, forgive your lover, (laughs) tell your story, write your poem, make art, you know, do what's called for. And as you quiet yourself from the place of wisdom, look around and do something beautiful. You know, bring your particular and unique gift to this world because that's really what you're here for. Somehow you're here to let the particular starlight that has come into your being shine in some unique way to bring your gift. Some wealthy businessman asked the Buddha about the life of awakening um, and should he become a monk? And the Buddha replied, the joy of truth-seeking, of a truth-seeking life is attainable for anyone who follows the path of unselfishness. If you cling to your wealth, it's better to throw it away than let it poison your heart. But if you don't cling and use it wisely, it will be a blessing. It's not wealth and power that enslave us, but the clinging to them. My, teacher doesn't requ- my teaching doesn't require anyone to become homeless or leave the world unless they choose to. But it does require everyone to free themselves from the illusion that they are separate and permanent and to give up grasping and act with integrity. And whatever you do, whether in the world or as a renunciate, put your whole heart into it. Be committed and energetic. And if you have to struggle, then do it without envy or hatred. And live not a life of self, but a life of truth. And in that way, joy will enter your heart in all that you do. So you quiet yourself. You say, yeah, things change. There's a measure of sorrow that we're all given, a certain burden, and a measure of joy, of dance, of beauty. Rest in the wisdom heart, the one who knows, sense this dance. And then add to it. Do something beautiful. The day the Buddha died, which was almost this season, it was late in the spring, summertime actually in India. He was an old man. He'd wandered the dusty roads of India for 45 years teaching freedom to people, saying you can live with a free and loving heart no matter where you go. Remember this. Remember your own goodness, your own true nature. Don't get lost. And after 45 years of walking on those dusty roads, finally he got very ill and lay down between two sal trees, which immediately filled with blossoms, as the story says, on the summer day. And he looked into the faces of those who were around him, some who were wise and understood, some who were frightened, who didn't understand that everything changes. And he said to them, Make of yourself a lamp. Make of your life a light, a lamp. Bring the, the lamp or the light that, was, that is in you to shine in this world. So even as the seasons turn from the longest day and start little by little to get darker, you know, it's not just the lamp of the sunlight, but it's really the lamp of illumination that you carry. And the invitation of meditation, the great art of mindfulness to be present here and now, and the great heart of compassion, which is your birthright that you were born with, waits for you to sit, to take your time, to reconnect.
lovely to sit quietly in the first summer evening. Crickets begin out there. The spring frogs have quieted themselves and gone wherever they hide. The rustling in the trees in the forest. Rest in the reality of the present. It is your home. Let's sit for just a few minutes. The world wants to renew itself, every day it does, in these turning seasons, and the heart wants to renew itself, to get it right. You can feel the turning to wisdom, to forgiveness, redemption, compassion, that's so natural. Let's end with a very simple chant, um, and then we'll go out into this lovely first evening of summer. Um, The chant is the one I started with, all things are impermanent, they rise and they pass away, to find harmony in the midst of change is to discover true happiness the joy of the Buddha within you. So let's do it as call and response. We'll do it in Sanskrit and Pali. Anicca vata sankara Anicca vata sankara Upatava yatamino Upatava yatamino Upakitava Upakitava niruchanti Desang bupasamo suko. Desang bupasamo suko. And then just the first phrase, three times you can chant with me. Anija wata sankara. Anija wata sankara. Anija wata sankara. Rest in the midst of the turning of the seasons. Rest in the wise heart and great compassion. And bring this wisdom to all that you touch in the days ahead. Thank you.
Thank you. Good night. Thanks for your generosity. Also, Sue needs a ride to the East Bay, to North Berkeley BART. Is there somebody who can give a ride to the East Bay? Raise your hand if you can. All right. Um, come up and meet Sue here next to the bell afterwards. And um, drive politely out there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.